My name is Stephen Lavick, and I'm here with John Eastman, and we're doing an interview on the Electoral College. The Electoral College was, you know, made in Article One, Section Two of the Constitution. Um, why, why does that matter? Why, why do we have an Electoral College? Well, it's it's very important. Um, the founders uh, had just thrown off a, a tyrannical king. Um, and they were very concerned about other forms of tyranny uh, taking control of the government. Um, it's why we don't have a king. We have a president with an elected office. But it's also why we don't have simple raw democracy, pure legislative rule by, by the, the people, because they were concerned about majority tyranny as well. And so there are a number of checks and balances in the Constitution designed to slow down uh, the power of the, the, the raw majority who can sometimes act um, passionately before stopping to think. That's why we have a Senate that was not directly elected at the time. Uh, it's why we have a bicameral legislature. Uh, it's why we have an independent judiciary. And it's also why we have an electoral college, just to kind of uh, diffuse the, the, the raw passions of the majority into an enlightened majority. A second reason for it is that we wanted to be very sure that um, the president was elected uh, having to appeal to all parts of the country rather than just um, the heavily densely populated areas. Uh, and so the electoral college diffuses uh, and what takes a raw majority and makes it into a more politically possible governing majority. Uh, it's a critical component of the constitution. How does the electoral college work? Is it that you know these electorals get accepted into the college? So what, the con the constitution specifies that each state's legislature gets to determine how its electors are going to be chosen. Um, and throughout history, that the, the the rules the states have applied, uh, the method of choosing electors has varied. Uh, today, every state has an election for of electors. Uh, most people may not know this, but when you go cast a vote on your ballot, it just says President Trump or Vice President Biden. What you're actually doing is voting for the slate of electors that have committed to vote for those candidates. Uh, so on November 3rd, you actually are voting for the electors. When those electors are certified as having won that election, they meet in December to cast their votes for president and vice president. Yeah, and in the past, haven't we seen some electors trying to defect? I think in 2016, we saw a couple of those. Well, we do. Uh, it's called faithless elector, electors that don't vote according to what they had pledged they would do if they were chosen as electors. Um, a, about half of the states have rules against faithless electors. Some of those uh, rules are pretty weak. Uh, you know, you could get fined $100 if you cast the wrong vote. Well, that's not very much if you're affecting in a presidential election uh, where people have spent, you know, a billion dollars on each side uh, waging the campaign. Other states have uh, faithless elector statutes with real teeth that if you if you if you don't cast your vote in, in line with what you had pledged to do when you were chosen, not only are you fined, but you're removed from the office of elector and somebody else is immediately substituted in. So your vote is voided. But there are a good number of states that don't have any such statutes at all. And uh, the Supreme Court just recently upheld statutes punishing faithless electors. Um, but it has never dealt with an issue where 
where their state's no state doesn't have a statute and you end up with a faith faithless elector. Let's say somebody casts a vote for Biden instead of Trump or vice versa, and that's the deciding vote in the election. Would it stand? Uh, there's not been a case on that. With Prop 113 in Colorado, which is the national popular vote, why, why does it matter that national popular vote would affect Colorado? Well, a couple things. One, the national popular vote movement is unconstitutional in my view, and I've testified about this before several state legislatures. Uh, it basically is a is a an attempt to um, repeal the electoral college without going through the prescribed process of a constitutional amendment. Um, second is even though the legislators of the state are allowed to choose the method of, of picking their electors, um, it would be odd to think that that meant they could have somebody else other than anybody in their own state pick their own electors. The, the extreme example I've given in testimony, could California decide to have its electors chosen by the Sultan of Brunei? I mean, it's laughably uh, laughable, but under the pure reading of the strict tax, there's no requirement that says they couldn't, uh, but it's laughable. Uh, well, the national popular vote does something very similar. Uh, it says no matter how Coloradans would vote, uh, we have to give our electoral votes to a majority uh, as determined by other states. So if Colorado votes for Joe Biden, um, but but a majority of the popular vote elsewhere in the country goes for Trump, then we would have to cast our electors here in Colorado for Trump or vice versa. Right. Uh, and so it's handing off the decision making power from the state to what happens in other states. Uh, uh, and, you know, I just ask people, do you really want the larger populations of California and New York deciding how Colorado's electoral votes ought to be cast? Our forefathers deemed the Electoral College to be set up for future generations, and they kind of set the architecture for America within our Constitution. What are the rules for reversing a, an actual constitutional amendment? Well, it takes uh, two routes to have a constitutional amendment. They're both spelled out in Article 5 of the Constitution. The one that we have used every time in our history thus far uh, has been uh, two-thirds of each House of Congress, the House and the Senate, propose an amendment, and then that goes to the states for ratification. And we can have two methods chosen. By, and Congress decides which method to use. It can either go to the current state legislatures or it can go to special conventions called in the state to ratify the amendment. Uh, but either route, it requires three-fourths of the states in order to approve the amendment. So that right now is 37 states would be required. Excellent. And uh, 38, 38 states required. 37 would be just like half a state's vote short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in the system of checks and balances, you know, like the broader system of our government, why does the Electoral College kind of check our Congress and our um, our Supreme Court as well? Well, the elect I don't think the Electoral College does that. Uh, certainly the presidency does that um, uh, because no legislation can pass without the president's signature or a supermajority veto override. Um, uh, and, you know, and that's you know, that's a fundamental part of the checks and balances. But what they designed is to have it, it wouldn't make any sense to have checks and balances if all of the branches involved in the legislation were chosen by the same electorate. Um, uh, 
uh, you know, it's just, it just would gum up the system with no purpose, just make it more difficult. Um, so you, they understood what they were doing is designing the legislative process so that you had, you know, the different branches of government were to the extent possible elected by different constituencies or different manners. So the House was directly elected by the people. The Senate was indirectly elected by the people through the state legislature. That did two things. It kind of created a different constituency, but it also uh, gave the states as separate sovereign entities a, a, a stake in the game at the national level to ensure uh, to be able to protect their own sovereign prerogatives. And then, of course, you had the president elected by who's the only person elected with a national constituency, but a national constituency that's just not raw numbers. But by having to appeal to electoral votes that are a bit weighted in favor of small states. And this, I think, is the important piece. Each state gets the number of electoral votes that are a combination of how many representatives they have in the House of Representatives, plus however many senators they have. Of course, every state has two senators, no, how, no matter how big they are. Alaska has two senators and California have two senators and their populations are vastly different um, because the, the, they didn't want just raw population being able to decide things that would be conducive to majority tyranny and therefore a real threat to individual rights. It's a majority plus one, correct? That that wins the presidency, right? Yes. So what happens if there is not a majority? Well, that's actually so uh, two things with a two with a two candidate race. It's uh, either going to have a tie or you're going to have a majority. Now, there's one caveat on that. It says a majority of the electors appointed is what the Constitution requires. Right now, there are 538 electors who could be appointed. Um, uh, And so uh, half of that is 269. You could have a tie at 269. So it takes 270 to win under the current uh, under the current calculation. But if one of the states, for example, has been unable to certify their electors because of massive backlog on absentee ballots or whatever, that lowers the denominator and hence lowers what the majority plus one would be, um, 50% plus one. So somebody could conceivably win with less than 270 if there's a state that doesn't certify any electors. If there are multiple candidates running or a faithless elector problem who casts a vote, say, for Bernie Sanders instead of Joe Biden, and that creates uh, three candidates having achieved electoral votes, but none having a majority of those that were actually cast, then it gets thrown to the House of Representatives to decide. Um, but it's not a pure majority in the House of Representatives. It's a majority of the state delegations, each state getting one vote in the House of Representatives. Uh, and currently, Republicans control 26 state delegations. Democrats control 23. And one of them, Pennsylvania, is evenly split. Um, but it's, of course, not the current Congress that will decide this. The votes in the Electoral College are opened in a joint session of Congress on January 6th. Uh, but the new Congress uh, takes office on January 3rd. So it'll be the new Congress uh, elected on November 3rd, uh, not the current one that will decide that question if it gets thrown to the House of Representatives. It did in 1800. It did again in uh, in 1824. Um, and it did again in uh, 1876, uh, where we had three uh, things. But but uh, in the ele- election of 1800 was odd. They both cast a vote for the president and the vice president. But that was before the 12th Amendment distinguished the two. And 
and Thomas Jefferson and his running mate, Aaron Burr, got the exact same number of votes. Everybody knew Burr was supposed to be vice president, but they got the same number of votes. And so it got thrown to the House of Representatives. And uh, 28 ballots later, they finally voted for Jefferson after Hamilton came out against Burr, uh, which uh, historical tidbit led to the duel between Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton that, that uh, cost Alexander Hamilton his life. Yeah, and Aaron Burr is, is quite the character. He was part of, I think, a treason case as well, right? Yeah, uh, and he also tried to uh, instigate an insurrection in, the, insurrection in the Southwest to create a secession movement in a new country that he would become president of. He was a very ambitious man. Yeah, ambitious in a, in a different way than <laughs> we, we should be. But um, And then, so going back to the Electoral College, is there anything else that you um, hope that I would have talked about? Or Yeah, want- one, last, one last thing. You know, um, uh, many people probably remember the chaos uh, in Florida after the 2000 election. I was heavily involved in a number of levels in litigation and also testifying as an expert before the state legislature. But all of that chaos and the hanging chads and the recounts and all of that was limited to a single state, really drawn out of a single county. If you had a national popular vote where, where you know, uh, the, where, uh, a close election, then every vote in every precinct in every county and every state would matter. The potential, the incentive, the inducement to fraud would be massive. Right now, if you're in California, it doesn't matter if you if you kick in another thousand ballots or so. Joe Biden's going to win California. But if you're in a national popular vote, any incentive for fraud to add add votes to the national tally would exist in every precinct in the country. And all of the normal checks on confining concerns and chaos would be out the window. We would have Florida in every state. We would have Broward County in every county in the country if we were operating under a national popular vote. It would be devastating. Bad enough if we were just a kind of an isolated, you know, relatively insignificant country. But when you're, we're the, the sole superpower in the world, and you have that kind of chaos uh, that may extend for months, uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure the world could survive such a thing. Certainly. Yeah. And thank you very much for doing this interview, Professor Eastman.